Welcome back, listeners, to another episode of the Georgia Music Teachers Association podcast. My name is Bebe Lin, Vice President of Membership with GMTA, and I am excited to be back with another wonderful music teacher today for what promises to be an excellent conversation. One of the things I'm most impressed by with GMTA is how it's an organization that is run and powered by incredible volunteers who do remarkable acts of service that is time and labor intensive for our organization, simply because they are passionate about education, music, and service to one another. Today's guest falls into that category. I am joined by Amy Neal, who is our VP of Newsletters for GMTA. Her work makes it possible for all of us to stay informed with current events involving GMTA, and the newsletters are available for everyone to access on our website. But I better stop blabbering on and get to our conversation. Let me welcome our guest. Hello, Amy. Good morning. Good morning. Let's get started with just a background question. Tell me about what you do and how you got to where you are today. So um, I run a private studio at home and I've done that for a couple of decades now. And then I also teach at Shorter University. I'm a professor there and I teach class piano, piano pedagogy, a lot of secondary piano lessons. And I also do some accompanying for them if they need that. Um, and the occasional music appreciation course, of course. And then I am also a past president of our local Rome Music Teachers Association. And like you said, one of the VPs for Georgia Music Teachers. So um, as for how I got here, got a long story, I guess. But um, I mean, I've played the piano since I was seven and eventually earned two degrees in piano. And at the end of my master's degree, well, during my master's degree, I met my husband, who is a choir director. And because of that, we have moved around for both of our jobs. So we've lived in a variety of places. I've taught in Texas, where I'm from originally. Then we lived in California for a while, and I taught in Los Angeles for three years. Then we, after that, moved to South Georgia, and we lived there for seven or eight years. And this is our seventh year in Rome, Georgia. So we have been kind of all over the place. Wow, fantastic. When you got started in music lessons, was it something that you asked for or is that something that your parents put you in? Um, One of my little elementary school friends, her mother was a piano teacher and my friend took piano from her mom and I wanted to do that too. So my parents signed me up for lessons with Mrs. Wiles and my parents are not, they love music, but they are not musicians. And so we didn't even own a piano and this was the early 80s. So they found a piano in the want ads, you know, the classifieds um, in the paper. And we went and looked at this piano. I still remember it was in these people's garage. Like that's how not good it was. And it had been a player piano originally. And someone had taken out the player mechanism and just covered up the front window with plywood. So this is the upright piano that I started piano on for a few years, but Obviously, my parents wanted to make sure it was really going to stick before they went out and bought something, you know, a really big investment. And then a few years later, we got a much nicer piano. I think they decided I really wasn't giving it up. Um, So it was my idea. And I'm still really the only, well, I'm the only professional musician in my family. Yeah. So fantastic. So you mentioned your very first teacher. Do you have a favorite memory of your teachers that you can share with us? 
So I only took from that teacher for a few years and then she moved away and I switched teachers to a different teacher named Ruth Pitts, who was very involved in Texas music teachers things. She's pretty well known there. And she's well known because although she's a really widely accepted piano teacher, she was born with hand and foot differences. So as hard as this is to imagine, my piano teacher from the fourth grade to the 12th grade only had five fingers, two on one hand and three on the other hand. And she's has been like teacher of the year in Texas. I mean, she's incredibly well-known. So everything about her was just inspiring every week when I went to my lessons. And I do think I'm a piano teacher mostly because of her, because I just wanted to be her. She was the most joyful person even today. She used to say, I used to have a late lesson, like in middle school, I would come late on Thursdays and I was grumpy and middle schoolish and all the things. And she would always say something like, play me something pretty. What beautiful thing do you have to play for me today? And she had worked all day too. And she was just so joyful. So even now when my piano students come in and they look tired, I say in the words of my old piano teacher, play me something pretty today. Or what beautiful thing do you have to play for me today? Just, I don't know. I just always think of her when I say that. So do you know more about her story, like her background and her education and her progress as a teacher? Um, I know some, she was born with the hand and foot differences. So one of her legs is in a brace and one is artificial from the knee down, but your listeners will appreciate that she also plays the organ, including the foot pedals. And then she was born with these hand differences and she has a beautiful singing voice and she loved music and her parents. I don't know who her piano teacher was. I would give anything to know who said, sure, I'll teach you how to play the piano. Her, most of her degrees are in like musicology or a more sort of scholarly type degree, but she's quite a good piano. She has an amazing ear and she can, she just knows what to leave out and how to roll a chord quickly. And so, I mean, she taught me all of my scales and arpeggio. She just couldn't model them, but she still knew how to teach me the correct fingerings for all of those. So, I mean, I grew up playing, you know, all the classics and all of that from her. So I do think, I just feel like somebody said they would teach her piano and that has changed countless people's lives. So I think part of my philosophy is not to turn anyone away. Like anyone should be able to to take piano because somebody taught her piano and she taught me. So I feel really just privileged to have that experience from her. Yeah, that's incredibly inspiring. Do you remember what piece from your musical studies as a child got you hooked on music? I was trying to think about pieces from when I was younger. And again, I didn't grow up in a musical family. I did not grow up listening to classical music. I mean, my parents love it, but they didn't play that on the radio or anything. I just loved all of it. The piece that sticks out in my mind is having the first like really strong emotional connection was in high school. And I'd been playing the piano a long time by then. But the Chopin Nocturne in E minor, the, the posthumous one, I heard it in a made-for-TV movie that I loved as a young girl um, of The Secret Garden, the book, The Secret Garden. And it was like running in the background of this movie all the time. And I just thought it was the most achingly beautiful music I had ever heard. And again, this will date me, but here's what I did. I recorded the movie on a VHS tape because you could do that. 
And then I took it to my piano teacher and said, please put this in your VCR and tell me what this piece is because I don't know what it is. And my parents don't know what it is. So I left it with her. And when I came back the next week, she was like, it's Chopin. You can play that. Let's play that. And so I just, that was the first time it was like, I couldn't make it as beautiful as I thought it was. And I just wanted it to be as beautiful as I thought it was all from some cheesy TV movie, but Yeah, that's incredible because as you were telling the story, I was thinking, so how did you figure out that was Chopin? Because I'm assuming the Google machine did not exist back then. And so you couldn't couldn't just say, hey, Siri, what is this? You couldn't go on YouTube and search out the soundtrack um, and the listings of that. So that's really inventive of you as a child. I was really determined to know what it was. So I, you know, figured out how to (laughs) back when we could record things from the TV to the VCR. That's fantastic. What was practicing like for you as a child? I practiced a lot, especially in the initially. And my parents say that they had to ask me to stop practicing. Like, can you please stop? We just want like to watch TV and not have that in the background. And in fact, the nicer piano that I mentioned that they bought instead of the middle pedal, it had the practice pedal that was essentially like like a mute for the piano because it was driving them crazy that they couldn't hear the television because I was practicing all the time. When I got to high school, that got harder. And again, I did not have parents who really understood that two and three hours of practice a day was normal. And I didn't have any role models to understand that. And so That was, I remember sort of pushing against that a little bit. You can't seriously think I'm going to practice that many hours a day. Like, surely not. But I did stick with it and obviously figured out how to do that moving on. But initially, I think I couldn't stop playing the piano. I just played all the time. So Was that one of the appeals of purchasing that piano, that practice pedal mechanism for your parents? Is that why they got it? Yes, because in our house, the piano was in this, living room, like the family room where the television was. And we only had, again, so long time ago, we only had the one television. So I was constantly playing and that was constantly interfering with people watching television. It didn't bother me that they watch TV. I just bothered them. So yes, then my dad would say, please put that pedal down so I can hear the news or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. So you, you briefly touched on the need to practice two or three hours at a later age in high school. It almost sounds like if you're getting requests from your teacher to practice that intensely, you were already on a trajectory to become a music major. Do you remember that, that process for yourself of thinking, you know, I'm taking piano lessons, but now this is something that I want to pursue as a career. I don't remember ever not wanting to do that. I mean, it's just, my mother was an elementary school teacher. So I think teaching was in my blood and in my family. And I mean, we helped her in her classroom. I knew all about teaching. She had to stay after school. So we stayed after school. I knew all about teaching. And I actually considered general education, music education, and piano pedagogy. Those were the only majors that I ever even really considered. But I, again, just wanted to be my piano teacher. So I just wanted to teach like she did. And so I ended up going the piano performance and pedagogy route instead of music education. 
but I don't remember a time that wasn't what I was going to do. So again, all through high school, I sort of thought it was normal. Although now that I'm a teacher, I know that that wasn't normal, but that I played a 10 piece guild program every year. It was all classical music plus my scales and arpeggios and chord progressions. And I just thought everyone did that. I just didn't know. Again, I didn't have anyone. I mean, people in my studio were doing that with me. So I just thought that was normal. Um, she had me in all these competitions all the time. And so I think, I don't know, I just always knew that was what I was going to do, or maybe she just knew that was what I was going to do, but I was sort of always headed for that plan, I think. So we started touching a little bit on your teaching and the fact that your mother was a teacher, obviously very influential and your teacher being very influential in your life. Describe your journey as a teacher. How have you changed who or what have been your key influences? So I had the piano teacher in high school who I talked about, and then my undergrad in pedagogy is from Baylor. And so, I mean, my professors there taught me so much that I didn't know. I mean, I just watched my teacher, but now they sort of taught me how to run a studio, things to consider, even things like what other books existed than the ones I had personally used. You know, even today, my undergraduate pedagogy courses that I teach are based largely on what I learned and how I was taught even that long ago, because it seems to have served me really well. So obviously the material is updated, but the concepts I think are the same. And then my master's degree also in pedagogy was with um, Jane McGraw. And so her knowledge of repertoire, as well as her mastery of technique, just beyond anything I've ever done also impacts how I teach. So I, I kind of think I'm a mix of all of them. I mean, I run a pretty structured studio, which I think I got from my mom, just her management of a classroom. From my high school piano teacher, I really have this belief that anyone can have some level of success at the piano. And I think that's really important in my class piano classes um, at shorter. And I tell them all the time, I don't want you to play at Carnegie Hall. I just want you to be a functional musician and let's find your level of success so that this is useful to you and not a cause of anxiety to you. Because I feel like people take class piano and they just learn they're terrible at the piano and that has not served anyone well. So let's learn what we're good at and let's be good at that. And then I just think understanding of technique and repertoire, all of that comes from my other teachers as well. So I think I get to do all the things. I get to teach little beginners and I get to teach high school students who are playing more advancing repertoire. And then I teach legally adults, college students who don't know anything about the piano. Um, And then I have these secondary students who some of them are not very advanced, but then um, a non-major came and took piano this past spring, she was a pre-med major and she was incredible. And no one even knew she could play the piano that well. And it was her last semester and she just thought it'd be fun. So I feel like I get to touch on a wide range of students with a lot of different goals, which is really fun. Yeah. When you're teaching in so many different contexts, so so many different students covering such a wide array of repertoire and needs and goals, how do you achieve um, organization and balance in your life? Like, how do you keep track of everything? (laughs) Maybe not as well as I would like, but for my private students, I have um, a notebook with every like dividers and all my students. And then I keep a record each week of what we've done. And then I have a, like, I made this little, it's like a chart. So what we did this week and then 
if I need to remember a goal, like next week, we need to assign this or be sure you order a new theory book or whatever. I have a place for that. Um, and then in my home studio this year, I instituted a new sort of challenge system, which I'd never done before, which was really fun. So we created teams and there were always two teams competing against each other and they changed. Um, we did four different rounds. So you weren't stuck on the same team. Um, and then each challenge had prizes. So, and they were small, like a gift card to the frozen yogurt place, or, I mean, the last one was a $10 Amazon gift card, but even that doesn't buy you a whole lot. And then they earned points for practicing during the week for doing their theory. Um, I might assign them like an individual. Okay. Next week, if you know all your white key major scales, then that's so many points or that was on an individual level um, for memorizing music for competing or performing and whatever was happening locally. And then there was always something scholarly, like look up Beethoven and write me 10 facts about his life and listen to two pieces and tell me what you liked about them. So it had to be something even elementary students could do. Um, and then there was always a creative one, like figure out how to play a Christmas song by ear or something, depending on the season. And so then I had to track all those points on my little chart as well. And then the teams would win. And then at the end of the year, there was one overall winner who had the most points for the year and she won a $50 gift card. So that was like the big prize that people were after. Um, so that was really fun at home. And then I have a very similar system for my private students at Shorter where I keep up with what we do each week because I have to give them grades. So what did you earn for this lesson based on how you did? Um, so there's a separate notebook for them. And then class piano is, I mean, it's a class. So there are lessons and Google slides and grades and quizzes because that's a class. So it's all like in separate parts of my life. Yeah. So I want to go back to this team idea that you created for your home studio. How well did that work? Did it motivate the students to work super hard? Almost all of them. Some of them, you know, I think I could throw money at them and they are still just weren't really that competitive of people. But yes, it did. And especially as it, if it got close and I could say they all know each other. So I could say, you know, student A has 10 points more than you. But if you really did these two things this week, you could totally beat them. And they would come back and do that. And then I could play the other kid the same. You know, they I mean, they knew each other and the teams changed each time. So they'd get really excited about who was on which team and one, usually I just let them draw like out of a cup and see what team they were on. But for one of them, I forced it into boys and girls because I had an even number. And so it was boys against girls and, and the girls won. So that was fun, but it, it was fun to see who kind of rose to which challenge. I would have these little kids who would look up facts about a composer and bring them. It was super cute. One of the challenges was to make a video of yourself playing and then judge yourself. And I like told them what to check. And then they had to send me the video so I could see if their judging was right. But like when you're preparing for guild and you have pieces to memorize, it's good for them to memorize their, you know, assess their own playing instead of just what I say. So, and their judging was hilarious. Like tempo, not good. Notes still missing. Like, I mean, it was really cute what they would say. So yeah, it was fun just to see how they kind of accepted those. The piano teachers here in Rome met last summer and kind of brainstormed ways to motivate their students and a bunch of people shared a bunch of different ways they had done it. And I kind of, it wasn't, I didn't take it from just one person. I kind of piecemealed from each of them different ideas. And that was where I came up with this. So I want to clarify the teams were competing against each other or the teams were competing within the team. Like 
the four people in the team were competing for first place in team. It was, it was team versus team. So, I mean, if you had an off week, but your teammate did well, that was okay because it was team versus team always. However, because I had to keep up with each individual person's points in order to know how the teams were doing, then at the end of the year, there was one person who had earned the most points, regardless of which team they had been on. And they got this big prize. So we did two sessions in the fall and then two sessions in the spring, like two. So a total of rounds of this competition. And they all had silly names. Like the first one was how sweet it is because it was, you know, still hot. And it was like popsicles versus ice cream. Like they were really not scary teams. And then the Christmassy one was like Frosty versus Rudolph. And then the next one was January and that was the Olympics. And that was the girls versus boys. So it was figure skating versus skiing. And then um, the last one was just Beethoven versus Mozart. Cause I wanted one classically themed challenge. I love that. I love that you kept track of their individual points as well, because that seems to mean that if someone was stuck on a team that was not motivated, they could still have the opportunity of rising to the top and not be bogged down by their teammates. Right. Yes. And I put it all in a Google Sheets that added up their teams. And then I made a little QR code and put it in their notebooks So they could scan that little QR code whenever they wanted and see how they were doing. And honestly, how everyone else was doing, because I hoped that the parents would say, you do not have as many points as everyone else. So maybe we should do, you know, that it would sort of help that way as well. Oh, that's fantastic. I love that. It's super high tech and so organized. Great. Um, So I think we've started touching on this, but I'm going to ask this question anyways. How do you approach teaching? What is your teaching philosophy? Again, yeah, we have touched on that a little bit, but my overarching teaching philosophy is that anyone can play the piano and anyone can enjoy it at some level. And then within that, I want to create understanding musicians. Everyone has to do theory. We can't just play by ear, but also well-rounded musicians who do know how to use their ear and who do know how to memorize music and who do know how to read music. And then within that, I sort of tailor it to what the student is interested in. All of my students play classical music. All of my students play holiday music. All of my students play something in the jazz and pop category. My sons are young teenagers. And so within that sort of social network, I have some people their age in my studio. And there's a very strong obsession with video game music. A lot. So that is a part of how my teaching philosophy has changed because 20 years ago, I would have said, that's not what we're going to play. You have to play Mozart. And now I say, let's play that and Mozart or something along those lines. But honestly, they work really hard for the music they want to play. The rhythms are harder. The patterns are harder. I mean, they're learning harder fingerings and more challenging harmonies in that music which then is beneficial when they need to play a sonatina movement. And now we've talked about fingering or maybe a jazz piece, but we've talked about this rhythm. And so I, my philosophy has evolved to allow them to explore more music. I only played classical music and hymn arrangements growing up and Christmas music only. So it's fun for me even to find out that there's some really interesting Nintendo music I didn't know about that's been kind of good for me to discover as well. Yeah, I, I'm not very up on the uh, 
video game music world, but from what I've heard, a lot of the music is really beautiful and intricate and um, difficult to execute and play on the keyboard, actually. It's really, my son will play something and I, this really happened. I said, why are you listening to Stravinsky? And he said, this isn't Stravinsky. It's from this video game, but it sounded so much like that to me that I was just sure that's what he was listening to. So there is a lot, I mean, it's much more advanced music than I think when I was growing up. So that's been kind of nice. I also, students like a lot of movie themes, like we play all the Harry Potter or, or whatever. But again, I just think they're so motivated and you can talk about the line and Hedwig's themes just as much as you can in romantic music. And then those just play into each other. And so it's been fun to discover sort of different ways of approaching that. What are your goals for your students and for yourself? So my goals for my students are that they love piano and that they're not afraid to play it for other people. Even in class piano, three times a semester, they have to play for the class for a grade. And I always say the goal is to not die because if you hyperventilate when someone hears you play the piano, it hasn't been a very useful class for you. So all we're here to do is prove it didn't kill you. And so far, I'm 100% not killing anyone. Even for my private students at home, my Christmas recital and spring recital are required for the same reason. I mean, if you know all this beautiful music and you can't share it with people, then that was really a shame. I mean, music should be shared with people. And so within that, the rules are really flexible. I want you to memorize your music. I want you to play more than one piece on the recital. But if those are not, you know, so let's play with the music, but you have to play because people have to hear you. And frankly, the parents pay a lot of money. They should get to see a recital, you know, so music is to share. So really my goal is that they play beautiful music that they are willing to share with other people. That would be my overarching goal and everything else, even theory fits into that. It helps you understand the music so that you can play it beautifully and share it with other people or your scales help you play well. So you can share your music. For myself, I went through a really long period of not playing the piano other than like for jobs, like for church or or accompanying, but not just playing for myself. And then when we moved here, Shorter has a faculty performance every year. And so I have really challenged myself to get back into performing in that just because I shouldn't ask my students to do what I'm not willing to do also. And from that, I also always play on my studio recitals. And I always say, it's not fair to ask my students to do what I am not willing to do for them. And so sometimes I play at the beginning and sometimes I play at the end. And sometimes I play a duet with my husband, who's quite a good pianist as well. Like at Christmas, we play some cute little duet or something, but I always play something just so that I am still playing. And so that my students can see like she really can teach me piano because she really does know how to play the piano. Yeah, that's great. I love that uh, modeling for your students. This is our very last question. What would you say is the balance between talent and work ethic when it comes to determining success in a student? It's like the million dollar question. I think it has to be 50-50, really. I mean, I know lots of talented music majors who don't practice and therefore their success is really hindered. 
And I also know a lot of pianists who maybe don't wake up in the morning as innately gifted as somebody else, but they practice all the time. And then they find this great success from their determination. I kind of think I fall more into that camp myself. Again, I didn't just grow up in a musical family where that was what was heard, but I worked really hard. Then I'm still doing this and other people maybe who are really just incredibly gifted, but it just wasn't what they were driven to do. So now they do something else. So I really think it has to be a pretty even split that you have to put in the work and there has to be at least some interest in being musical on some level, or, I mean, it would be really hard to be engaged with it. So I kind of think it's a split. Yeah. It's a mystery blend. It's the question that will persist for the ages. We'll keep asking it. I know. Who will decide? Yeah. Well, Amy, this has been a really fun conversation. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for your service to GNTA. Thank you for putting out all those wonderful newsletters for us to read on such a regular basis. And thank you so much for uh, this conversation, your insights and your stories, sharing your life with us, your experiences with your wonderful teachers, and now you yourself as a teacher. It's been a delightful conversation, and I've really enjoyed it. I wish you happy teaching and happy students.